0: hello listeners and welcome to teach me something the podcast where i still didn't write an opening line this week because i a writer's block Okay. So maybe, Everett, you could just fill in the blanks for me, and we're gonna do, like, a Mad Libs. Mad Libs. Yes, Mad Libs that is one. the word you're looking for. It okay, is. ready? Hello, listeners, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I...
1: Learn something. And you... Learn that, too.
0: Done. Done and dusted. I'm okay with it. Perfect. I'm Melissa.
1: And I'm Everett.
0: Uh, so first... I just want to do like a little housekeeping note. We have decided we're going to actually kind of commit more strongly to publishing Tuesdays on a consistent basis instead of the weekend because that has just not been doable. Yeah. Um, So I'll just stop lying to you about when we're going to publish and just change the date. (laughs) Tuesdays it is. Correct. Um, We haven't talked about much besides the Poison Squad for a month. True. It it
1: has consumed, uh, Yeah. you know, about a month worth of conversation.
0: Uh Uh-huh. And we're going to kind of really break away from that now, go a whole different direction. And today I want to talk about Calatricidae, which are some really cool monkeys.
1: Correct. They were not on the Poison Squad, just so everybody understands.
0: No, the poor little things. They'd never survive.
1: Exactly. That's why I'm helping. No... Monkeys were harmed in the creation of this episode.
0: Ooh, I don't... We can't promise that.
1: In the Private creation of the...
0: research was not always nice.
1: No monkeys were harmed in the production of the Poison Squad episodes.
0: This is true, yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay.
1: Excellent. Well, teach me something.
0: So I keep saying Calatricidae. Yes. Because it's fun. But also, maybe I think it would be a good idea to start by explaining what that means. Okay. Um... And so, the thing that you really really thought and wanted to hear so bad is I'm going to give you a little crash course on taxonomy.
1: Great. I'm in.
0: Always wanted that. I'm sure. Yep. Yeah. So taxonomy is just how we classify and sort all the life on earth.
1: Mhm.
0: And when we're talking about a specific organism, we use Latin names for their genus and their species. Um so a genus and a species, that's a that's a unique organism. Yep. Yeah. So to put these things in context, there's eight levels of classification that go from big and general groups to small and specific groups until we end up with the species as that unique identifier. Um, subspecies are a thing, but there are whole other count of worms we're not really going to get into because no one agrees on anything. Mm. There's not a lot of hard evidence involved.
1: Yeah, I there's don't just agree a with lot you. of
0: fighting and. Until we have the DNA for everything, it's just not really going to matter. We're going to keep changing it anyway. So just ignore subspecies whenever you hear about them. Okay. <laughs> um, Done. So in school, we were taught the, you know, not dirty version. Dear King Philip came over for good spaghetti. As he does. The often. Often said, dirty King Philip came over for good... Other things. Censored word. Yeah. Um, but, so... D-K-P-C-O-F-G-S. That's Domain, Kingdom, Phylum, Class, Order, Family, Genus, Species. So here is my favorite in school. Because there's like a million of these, Of right? course there is. Um, my favorite in school was Donkey Kong Please Coach Our Fun Gorilla Sports.
1: Hmm. He would be good at that.
0: Yeah, I made that one up. And then it was my favorite.
1: This makes Probably sense. Probably because I
0: made it up. Yeah. Um so you know, domains are made of kingdoms, kingdoms are made up of phylums, well, phyla. Um, but there's also like confusing things like infra orders and subclasses and super families that is tacked on every like Latin prep uh, not preposition what sort I'm looking for.
1: Post-script. The starting
0: the thing where you put it on to start prefix, every there Latin prefix.
1: Yes, this makes um, more sense.
0: On all of these little categories. And uh, okay, so now you get it, right? You're an expert on how all this works, and I'm going to go through ah, sure. the taxonomy of Calaturcidae. Okay. Uh, the Linnaean taxonomy, that is, which is old fashioned and will probably be gone soon after all the genetic evidence is in. But, anyways,
1: well, I don't I just understand you what Linnaean.
0: Oh, Linnaean taxonomy, it? as in named after Carl King Linnaeus. Linus. Oh okay. No. Carlos. Anyways, he latinized his name? That was not even his name, but whatever. Um who invented this whole thing? Okay. But there's phylogenetic taxonomy, which is like using genetic information to group things. That's obviously sounds more... it's newer.
1: Yeah. Linnaean
0: tax- well, linnae- you have to remember, Linnaean taxonomy was invented in the 1700s. Sure. They couldn't do that then. Yeah, I
1: get it. And DNA of the time. has
0: been not really a thing since, you know, that we could widely use since, you know, 80s, 90s. So, yeah, Linnaean taxonomy is going to go away with the dinosaur eventually. One we're going to use it today. Um, but it's still what's widely used. Phy- phylogenetic uh, fans will be maybe mad that I said that, but it's more widely used, Linnaean. Sure. So, Primates. Belong to domain Eukarya, kingdom Animalia, phylum Chordata, class Mammalia, order Primate. And then after order Primates have two suborders: one that has like the lemurs and bush babies and lorises, so there's Strepsurhini. Okay. And one with everything else, Haplorhini. Um and Haplorini in itself has two infraorders. Catarini, which are the old world monkeys and their okay. descendants. So us also. Um, and then Platarini, the New World Monkeys. So I keep saying Rini. R-H-I-N-I. Well, two R's actually. Nose. It means nose. I don't know why Primatologists, early Primatologists were so obsessed with naming every group after stuff about its nose but all groups like noses. describe noses. Okay. <laughs> I guess maybe it was the most obvious thing they could... I don't maybe. know. But that, like, that, that hints at how old-fashioned things are. We're grouping things by how their noses look. That's not always the most reliable way to do things. Um, so, old world, new world. What does that mean? Old world, Africa, Asia, yeah. where, where ancestral monkeys came from, new world is the Americas.
1: Correct. I actually knew that one. Nice. Yeah, score one point. For I me. should have
0: asked you to describe it. I'm so sorry. That's, that's okay. Um, so the Platterines, as I was talking about, um, which is flat noses, by the way. Hmm. They. Uh,
1: <laughs> flat noses.
0: They defi- like they descend from African ancestors that came and colonized South America about 40 million years ago, and there's there's two hypotheses about how they got there. Um. Rafting, you know, vegetation raft, that one's always thrown out there, right? Or land bridge. I mean, I've These are the, the classic vegetation
1: raft one for the... For Madagascar. Maybe. Correct, yeah. yeah. It, I mean, that one sounds a little bit more, it's more plausible, plausible. But yeah.
0: you understand that vegetation raft seems so silly when you think about how many animals would have to yeah. come across to establish populations, right? Land bridge is just...
1: It, yeah, right. Anyways,
0: that's the leading hypothesis, is the land bridge, because there's just little evidence for, for rafting. Um, and so the theory is there's the existence of Atlantic Ocean ridges, so then there's a fall in the sea level in the Oligocene, and then that would have either exposed these ridges as a single bridge, or at least, like, stepping stones that could be easily crossed by, like, you know, swimming dexterous water. monkeys. Yeah. Or just, jug. I don't know. They don't really describe sure. how far they'd be. Pole vaulting yeah. or something. <laughs> um, so, Calatricidae. They,
1: they get there 40 million years ago, is what you're saying.
0: <laughs> they could get there 40 million years ago. And Calatricidae is one of the five uh, families of the Platerines, Platerini.
1: The New World um,
0: monkeys. Yeah, and scientists are shockingly still fighting about this as well. There's some hmm. scientists that want to put Calatricidae as a underclass of a different family. Cebidae, which is like the... Yeah. Well, I you don't know, agree Cipuchins with them. You and Cebus Okay. I, I don't either.
1: I don't, I don't. agree wrong. with those other God. people is, as well.
0: Calatricidae is their own family.
1: God. I just want to be on the inside of the <laughs> science, so I'm going to fight everybody.
0: Well, as you've gathered from my podcast, scientists like to fight about things. Yeah. They really do. But that's good, because that means when there's a consensus in science... It didn't get there just because everyone agreed. People fought hard to get there. Yeah. Um in, in that's what it means in mostly every field. It's a good thing when scientists disagree and then come to conclusions, okay? Good thing. <laughs> Anyways, I'm off track. day. These are marmosets and tamarinds. That's the name you probably know them by. Um and so besides the strepsirines, which like the lemurs, mm-hmm. And by the way, strepstorins, not everyone considers them true monkeys, like the lemurs and the l- l- lorises. Right. Like they're they're a primate, but are, they're not really a monkey. Okay. So just like, you know, we're apes, not monkeys. They're technically primates, but not monkeys. Anyways. Sure. But not to be technical. Let's just say besides them, calatricids are the smallest primates. They're, they're okay. super teeny tiny. So they're like, the smallest one is the pygmy marmoset. 40 centimeters long. Okay. And the longest one, the golden lion tamarin, 75 centimeters long. So this is a very small group of animals. Um, The pygmy marmoset can weigh as little as 120 grams. Yikes. So, yeah, very teeny tiny. Um, And I mentioned this before, but, you know, cowl only live in tropical South America, but they do really, really, Realize that the Jefferies tamarin was in Central America as well. But so we not do have anymore. we do have one North American. Okay. Um, Calatricid. Marmoset is derived from the French marmoset. <laughs> it pretty much looks the same. Um, which actually means shrimp or dwarf. Oh. Yeah. So I, I couldn't find how tamarins got their name. I found they look
1: like tambourines.
0: <laughs> I I don't know if you've seen a picture of a monkey, but I don't think there's any of them that look like tambourines.
1: Well, I've seen pictures of the monkey. I've just never seen a picture of a tambourine before, so...
0: Oh, that's where you're... That's where you're like, I'm imagining, you like, like a, a
1: tambourine is, like, you know, kind of a a gangly instrument with four legs and a tail.
0: Um, couch are actually really, really nice to look at. They're all very, very interesting-looking monkeys. Um, so... Because they're so small, and that's unusual. All the other New World monkeys are so much bigger than them. Mm-hmm. Um, scientists think that they have dwarfed. The ancestral condition was larger, and then they, you know, dwarfed. This family got dwarfed. And um, it's re- it's kind of interesting because normally this happens really on, on islands only. Right. Where populations get so isolated, um, and they no longer need to be big. So there's too much resources taking up doing that, so they just get they just get smaller and they don't breed with outside populations. Anyways, yeah. um, so Calochromidae is different because they've done this in tropical rainforest areas. Um, but here's the theory: is that islands do exist in this case, right? So think about how teeny tiny they are. They weren't always quite that small, but they probably weren't super Massive. big. Yeah, right and Having to travel, traverse like jungle.
1: Like, what if there's like a break in canopy or something like that? Or.
0: So, exactly. Um, So, think about the Amazon, how many river offshoots and tributaries they are. So, those isolate patches of forest. Um, Believe it or not, there's been dry, arid periods in South America in the last 40 million years.
1: I maybe once or twice
0: (laughs) or often. Right. Yeah. So those dried out patch, like, so we're just talking about patches of forest and it just like, these guys are so little, you know, little islands have to eat all the time. You can't spend a lot of time traversing barren wasteland. So islands did happen in the tropical rainforest, forest. Even though it's not
1: the traditional, like island as in a piece of land surrounded by water, it could just be a piece of habitable area surrounded by, too large of an unhabitable area for them to cross properly or yeah, easily. Yeah,
0: I mean, yes. Um, you'll just find the term generally used is biogeographic barriers.
1: Great, Usually I can that, get behind that. <laughs>
0: I mean, it seems unnecessary complicated, so I wasn't going to bring it up, but um, you seemed like you wanted to know. I, I did. Good.
1: I mean, I asked you to teach me something, so that might be the, the, the thing.
0: <laughs> so there is... Maybe like 50 species of marmoset and tamarin, but I don't know because everyone fights so much over this too, Um, which are species, which are subspecies of other species. Like you can go to the sources and you're not going to find like any two that agree with each other. There's from 41 to 60, somewhere in that neighborhood, anywhere in there. Um, And calichokids, so like I was saying before, they're really nice to look at. They have like these glorious manes and silky coats, all different colors. They have long tufty tails and ear, like poops and tufts and mustaches. Anyways, mm. calatrucidae comes from the Greek, cala beautiful, trica hair. They did, beautiful hair. Oh, it means beautiful hair. Great. They have beautiful hair, you guys. You should look at pictures. The emperor tamarin, he looks pretty cool. So I didn't find, like I said, I didn't find why tamarins are named tamarins. But I found why a few Tamarins are named what they're named, and it's kind of cool. So, the Emperor Tamarin was named after German Emperor Wilhelm II because of their long, like, white, luxurious whiskers, which resemble the glorious mustache, apparently, that Wilhelm had. There's not a lot of pictures, photographs of the man, um...
1: Why would there they are need photographs of him if they have photographs of the tamarins?
0: Exactly. That's clearly why they named it that. Yeah. So there's another, there's a tamarind called the golden-handed tamarind, red-handed tamarind, or Midas tamarind. So Gold, you can see, salon, yes, yeah. you can see where, and it got that name from Greek mythology there. Um, but it's like, again, look at picture. It's super cool looking. It's all black, and then it has these, like, reddish gold hands and feet. Like, but it's a black monkey. And anyway, it just everything looks everything it's cool. touching is
1: turning to gold.
0: It's awesome. Cool. Um, so, another interesting thing about Calatricidae is that uh, they've kind of reverted back to an ancestral condition with their, um, hands and feet. Okay. So, one of the defining features of the primate order is our development of nails instead of claws. Right. Um... And are wonderful, opposable right. thumbs. Day has kind of reverted back to claws. Interesting. And gotten rid of the opposable thumbs. Their feet and hands look remarkably exactly alike to a squirrel. Think about a squirrel.
1: Yeah, okay. That's what their
0: hands are like. Um, and the thought is just like dexterity is in the treetops. They only live in trees. They don't come down. like. Dexterity in the treetops is the most important thing for these guys. Um, their main skill, like, they don't need to be, you know, swinging on a vine or, gra- like, grabbing prey items. Like, like the most important thing with them was just not falling out of trees. So the claws allowed them to hang on better. Sure. And so, yeah.
1: Like, squirrels are pretty good at hanging on to trees.
0: They sure are. Exactly. So, yeah, just think of it like that. And they can still, you know, use their hands for things just like squirrels. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's kind of cool. They So they eat fruit, and then animals, like insects and snails, frogs and lizards even, even though they're that tiny, they are able to do that. Sure. Um, but they also eat plant, what are called exudates. So like gum and sap and latex. Exudates. Yeah. Yeah. So tamarins eat more fruit. Marmosets eat more exudates. Um, marmoset teeth can actually be really specialized for feeding on that stuff. So they have like lower incisors that are as long as their canine teeth.
1: Holy cow.
0: Yeah. And they're really curved and have this thick outer layer of enamel. So they, they hook their upper incisors onto the bark and then they like
1: puncture or like rip? Yeah, they like
0: pump their pump their jaw, their lower jaw up and down, up and down, up and down, poking as large drilling, like boring holes with yeah. those big bottom lower incisors into the tree. So that the little as far as they can so out. it just starts to flow into their mouth. And then they drink like that. Um so yeah, so there's only, uh, there's actually two marmoset species that feed, like, almost exclusively on plant juices, let's say. The Western pygmy marmoset and the common marmoset. So they have to eat about 10% insects because they need some protein. Sure. But 90% of what they eat is That's
1: still a lot. plant
0: juices. Yeah, so there's, like, no other animals that have this diet except for, like, a one or two little lemurs. The really tiny lemurs. There's a few that do that too. So being small is a requirement to get enough energy from sure. that. Sure. So scientists call this diet um, being an obligate exudativore.
1: They couldn't just call it a triavore.
0: So I decided if you're not gonna write like a scientist and you want people to actually understand you, the late like the better term is actually gumivore. Hmm. Like a gum. I <laughs> Well, it's like a vampire on the tree, right? Tree not vampire? Eating, yeah, because they're not eating the tree. But then, they're do the sucking trees become the marmises? life force out of... Oh, I don't know. Um, Here's an interesting fact. They'll have a very small range because they're teeny tiny. Right. And those trees will be their trees. Like, they'll have, like, five or six trees, and those are their trees. And they've studied these trees after. And they'll have, like, 1,200 different holes all over. Like... Sure. Twelve to thirteen hundred different puncture holes all through that like each of those trees.
1: Basically like a tree parasite in a way. <laughs> a tree flea. Yeah.
0: Um and I mean, not to bum everyone out, but let's just talk about the thing about how marmosets and tamarinds are endangered and shocking. Um there's a few that do really well, actually. Common marmoset has been named one of the species most adaptable to human
1: well, It's pretty activity.
0: common. What's well, why it's the common marmoset, after all. Um, marmosets are a little... Doing, like, a little better than tamarins in general. Kind of have a more wide range and adaptability. Um, many, many, though, are threatened or endangered. The buffy-headed marmoset is critically endangered. And the black-faced lion tamarind, pied tamarind, and cotton-head tamarind are all critically endangered as well. Um... So, one of the big issues is habitat destruction. It's rainforest, after all. This should kind a shock to no one. But a really big issue for these guys is the pet trade. Ooh. They're small and cute, and um, people sure. should really think about giant teeth designed for puncturing things before they make the smart decision to buy one of these on the black market. Yeah. I mean, and then there's the ethics involved. So there are two really special things about Calatricidae that made me most interested to learn more and do this episode. Um, one is their social system, and the second is their reproduction. Mm-hmm. We're going to save the coolest stuff for last. So I'll start by talking about the social system that Calatricids... Social systems, there's multiple, that Calatricids like to use. Okay. So... It's common for female primates to mate with multiple males. Right. It's common. But it's kind of rare for the male to be okay with that. Like, they're normally mm. trying to stop it. They're they're not suggesting it and encouraging it and going along with it. Calatrichids are the exception here. Um, so many calatricid species are actually classified as monogamous, but there are also a whole bunch of them that are polyandrous. Okay. So poly is many and androus referring to males. Yeah. When people first started looking at social systems in marmosets and tamarins, they were only studying them in the zoo.
1: That doesn't seem like a great place to get like a natural sample set of.
0: So that's always been known to some extent. Okay. But maybe not to the extent we know it now. And all, all like, it's just harder to get certain opportunities um, without technology. And, sure. Anyways, so they started off observing them in, in the zoo. And they thought they're monogamous because every time they tried to introduce any other adult, there would be fights, they'd get attacked. It, it, would, it would never work. They could not introduce other group members. So they thought, okay, this is a pair. They're monogamous. They don't want anyone in there. Um, and, you know, the other thing is that polyandry was just a really unknown system that scientists didn't really theorize about. It was just like kind of the old school Men want lots of females, yeah. Like, just mm-hmm. a very old-school view of it uh, for a while in anthropology. Um, but once people started doing field studies and, wild, like, observing wild monkeys, they noticed that something more is definitely going on. Um, so a big study that was done in Saddleback Tamarins showed that over 60% of the groups were made up of one adult female and multiple adult males. Okay. Worth or without offspring, that part's not important right now, but um, only 20% of the groups were one male and one female. And so we see that the group composition is usually polyandrous. It doesn't necessarily mean that they mate polyandrously. Right. Right? Uh, I mean, sure. there's plenty of animals where... There's multiple males and multiple females, but there's only one mating male or female or whatever, right? Yeah. So um, a social system and a mating system are two different things. So okay, oh, they live in polyandrous groups. That's a really cool social social system. So how can we um, tell if they're polyandrous? Well, you you really just count who mates with who, right? This and makes f- sense. And so just to standardize things, the easiest group size to find was two males and one female in these tamarinds. Okay. And in groups of two males, each male got close to half of the matings. It was often like a 60-40 split. Yeah, Um, but
1: close enough to say that one isn't necessarily significantly favored.
0: Exactly. And then they noticed that not only were they sharing matings. They were sharing um, parental care. The two males combined, like in every in every group, the two males combined carried the infants more than the female ever did. Okay. The female was usually carrying them less than 20% of the time. And then the two males combined for the rest. And again, in a roughly equal way. Um, and we know that, okay, one of these males is taking care of an infant that clearly can't be his because there's only one father. Mm. So so what's going on? Why would a monkey be altruistic and take care of another male's offspring? Right. Why would you waste time and resources doing that? It was very confusing. Um, They thought they're being... So what's called a non-reproductive helper or alloparent. Allo just means other, other parent. And, you know, this is seen in other animals. In birds, there's often helpers in the nest, usually, like, offspring from previous seasons, sludgeons that come back. Um, like, in the bee-eater birds, they're known for that. Jackals do this. Um, other offspring, you know, helping to raise the, the, the current new offspring. infants. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and some primates, you know, barbary macaques have the, you know, non-reproductive helpers in their groups. So... Calatricids use what's called cooperative polyandry. There's two or more males with a single female. They both mate and they both help. They all help raise the offspring together. So this seems counterintuitive. Yes?
1: Uh, yeah.
0: Did you have a a question or theory? You look like you want to say something.
1: No, I think it spoils it because I'm suddenly cluing into I think conversations years ago that you've told me. Oh. So okay. I think I know the the answer and I'll just You know the I'll, answer I'll, to the I puzzle, think, huh? I think I'll just be honest at the end and tell you if I got it right or not.
0: Okay. Ever thinks he knows the answer to the mystery.
1: Yeah. I'll write it I'll write it down over here. <laughs> okay.
0: Don't okay. look I'm not gonna look. You write down what you suspect the answer is.
1: But I can't spell it very well.
0: I'll, I won't i will mark for spelling, I guess.
1: Okay, that's, that's You're welcome.
0: good.
1: Okay, good. <laughs> um, I'm going to fold it so that she doesn't see it.
0: <laughs> I don't know why that matters. Accidentally. Why would that matter? Well, I don't matter? want you
1: to cheat off of my answers.
0: Oh, right. You're right. I have no idea what the answer is. So uh, I no. know. How I will know. the podcast end? This is
1: for you to learn and teach us, not for <laughs> me to give you the answers.
0: Right. I've spent zero hours on this so far this week. I've learned nothing yet. I, I know. Okay, you um, may proceed. So I was talking about how it seemed counterintuitive, you know, because males usually are expected to be trying to gain access to as many females as possible. That's not normally the female strategy, right? Um, and then, second, again, it looks like altruism. Like, why would you? Do, why would you take care of someone else's offspring? And for these reasons, cooperative polyandry is very rare. Um, of course. Some raptors, hawks and eagles, some of them yeah. have been known to engage in these polyandrous mating systems and African hunting dogs. But calatricas are the only uh, non-human polyandrous primate because um, humans have had, you know, there's been quite a variation um, um, historic, like in tribal population, like different of types of systems that has been seen. Yeah. Um, so why do the monkeys do this? What's in it for them? To answer this, first we're going to need to talk about reproduction in calutricids just a little bit. So they reproduce early and often. They get to sexual maturity between one and two years of age. Okay. Um, some 11 months. They have twins quick. 80% of the time.
1: Really?
0: They're the only primates who routinely have twins.
1: When, when do you draw the line between it being like twins or triplets versus like a litter in other animals like dogs and cats.
0: It's an excellent question. Um, I wouldn't feel confident answering this live on air without checking first. Okay. I feel like I have ideas, but I wouldn't want to just. Now, the important part is I've stumped you correctly. Yeah.
1: And so everybody will denote yeah. that and, and, And we'll, you know, return some other day to that one.
0: (laughs) Because just to be clear, we're talking about fraternal twins in Calatricus. We are not talking about identical twins. Got it. This is important. Of course. So, but they will sometimes have triplets as well. Um, Dominant female con top tamarins. So let's just get this out of the way. Only the dominant females have offspring. Okay. Like there's more than one female, so they give birth to twins and sometimes triplets at seven to ten month intervals while they're in captivity. That's to me that's pretty crazy, but it's pretty um, often. So a colortricid mother can get pregnant again two to four weeks after giving birth. Pregnancy okay. is twenty to twenty four weeks depending on the species in these ones, top tamarins, it's twenty four weeks. So they have a twenty-four week pregnancy, and then they have two or three babies, and then they get pregnant again in two to four weeks.
1: Wow! So they have a lot of babies. Okay. They do. They have yeah. a lot of
0: babies, uh, which really is kind of the key to understanding the social system, because helping and helping and polyandry are beneficial because of the very high need for parental care.
1: Yeah, consistently.
0: Yes. So in saddleback tamarins, we're going to go back to those guys. Um, they They looked at um again wild populations, and they realized that in only one of the thirty three let's say sets of offspring twins or triplets, whatever, only one of them was born to a monogamous pair, and that pair was not monogamous when the female got pregnant. They had a second male who who had left during her pregnancy, okay. So, they didn't find any cases of monogamous um, tamarins having offspring. So, they appear to not even attempt to breed when they're in a monogamous pairing. Right. They need help. They need a group to successfully reproduce so they did not even try before they have a group.
1: Sure. Okay.
0: There's a lot of costs for the female to have the offspring and invest the amount that she does in them, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, especially, I mean, it's twins too, right? Like a lot more resources. At birth, the twins weigh about 19% of their mother's body weight each.
1: That's quite a lot.
0: So much. So, this is the equivalent of a 120-pound woman having two 11-and-a-half-pound twins.
1: Yeah, that well, I guess sounds... Well, two twins
0: doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you know what I mean? Okay. Having 11-and-a-half-pound twins.
1: Yeah. That's...
0: Wow. <laughs> I I, uh, I have no comment. Um, so, when they're pregnant, females spend 25% of their time feeding. And when they're lactating, they spend 35% of their time feeding. Wow. Because of how quickly they get pregnant again, they're going to be lactating and pregnant at the same time.
1: Right. And they're going to need those babies to grow up and not need milk pretty quick.
0: Um, yeah. The babies grow very quickly, right. as we heard. The sexual maturity within a year means they have to grow quickly. Yeah. So they need a lot of milk, a lot of energy. Um. The mom is still providing all of that, and so the solution. I mean, so it's a, it's a what came first thing, right? Because they obviously, um, have not always reproduced this quickly. Mm-hmm. Without the help, they need the help to reproduce this quickly, right? Yeah. Um. So so think about this. When the moms have to carry the infants around, they need to spend 92% of their time resting. Those guys are heavy. Yeah. So when does that give them time to spend all that time feeding that we just talked about? And then how are they going to feed the babies? And then how are the babies going to survive? Right. So if the mum doesn't have to help, help, her infants almost certainly die. When caretakers either the father, alloparent, whatever, carry the infants, which is what they have evolved to be doing now. Um, they rest 58% of the time, spend like 2 to 3% of the time traveling, and just eat right. the whole rest of the time, right? So mom's well-fed, mom can travel to safe places, protect the infants, feed the infants. And in both captive and wild populations when the group size increases, it almost perfectly correlates with a decrease in infant mortality rates. Right. And the amount of time mothers spend carrying their infants. So those things are all related. Um, so in wild top or wild cotton-top tamarins, 40% of infants survive if the group has three caretakers. These guys need a, lot, need a big group because only 40% will survive with three caretakers. Wow. Um, if you increase the number to six, then infant survivorship is between eighty seven percent and one hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. So you need you need this group, um, and, it, and it really it really helps. Uh, so like you know with all, allo parental care like others caring, you're only mostly talking about um, like older siblings that have stuck around, and they you know again carry the infant. They also do help give it food when they're when they're weaning and stuff. Sure. Um, because by that time, then the mother is going to be giving birth again and then exactly. to, you know. So it seems that helping is really essential for successful reproduction, and the Caltricid mating system is determined by the number of non reproductive helpers. How many of you that aren't having babies are going to help me with my babies? I need to know this before I have more babies. <laughs> they <reported>. need
1: spreadsheets.
0: <laughs> with the number of babies they're producing? Yeah. Definitely. So, monogamy seems to occur more often in groups where there's a sufficient number of older offspring around to help. Then, the adults can be monogamous. Sure. Um, Polyandry will occur more often in groups where they lack those older offspring. And they need help. Exactly. So, they will accept or go out and recruit a male to join their group. Makes sense. And just... Mm, evolutionarily speaking here, trying to explain some things, the males who are, you might think, you know, why would um, something that, you know, you're mated, you've got your mate, and now you're going to like share, like how would they know to do that? And just, it's just in general, um, he, they don't, again, they don't try to reproduce when they're a monogamous pair. So he knows right now he's having no offspring. That, that much he's aware of. Mm-hmm. So he he either gets no offspring, no matings, Or he has half of the yearly offspring, which is going to be some, you know? And if they cooperate to raise them, they will have some survive, right? Right. So Still better than nothing.
1: Oh, I was going to say fitness. Is that the right word?
0: I don't know. You have to finish your sentence.
1: His fitness percentage or level goes up from zero to at least some.
0: Yes. Correct. Yes. Um. And then, you know, if they get to be older siblings, at some point the first male might not accept the extra male in their group anymore, possibly. And what's in it for these older offspring though? Like why why what's in it? Like why would you stick around? You're not reproducing what you do it.
1: Learning skills.
0: So they kind Free of seem, rent. Yeah. Yeah. They kind of seem to be making the best of a bad situation for them. Like the habitat often doesn't have room for them to just disperse whenever they want to. Um, so they probably could leave, but they might get attacked by other members of their own species as well as, you know, now they don't have a group. So predators and finding food and all that other stuff. So they think if they can't have their own kids, they'll help raise the siblings who have some of their same genes. Not that they know that, but it also does increase their fitness because their siblings share some of their genes. And it also, there's evidence that marmosets and tamarins that help out like this are are better parents. And without that experience, they are like quantitatively worse parents. They have worse survival of their own infants when they become parents if they have never played that helping role before yeah
1: it's like you're supposed to you know you have to babysit before you become a parent sort of thing
0: it's a tough learning curve for me because that i never had really had that experience (laughs) um and like there's some more recent evidence that's it's trying to kind of point in the direction that tamarins tend to be polyandrous and marmosets tend to be monogamous with helpers just more often at that kind of divide between the two. And um, I mean, it might just be because for marmosets, their home range is a lot smaller on average than tamarins, and their day range, like how far they actually walk around every day is a lot smaller. So they don't have these ta- like as taxing uh, care- infant carrying burden. Sure. So they don't need all those extra monkeys around.
1: To help literally burden the load of yeah. 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 infants, heavy infants at that.
0: So let's just touch on the fact that, again, there's only the one dominant female that breeds, the mother, mm-hmm. and no other females reproduce, which would be her daughters, right? They don't have unrelated females in the group ever. Really? That would never happen. Okay. Um, so the dominant female is actually, one aspect is that she's repress or suppressing her daughter's reproduction.
1: Of course. Pheromones or something like that.
0: Exactly. So female cotton-top tamarins reach puberty at 18 months old and a long time ago was observed in captivity in the zoos. The daughters just don't have infants. They don't have offspring. What's going on? So, you know, urine samples, all the things that you could do to determine hormones and all these things. Um, They're not ovulating is what they learned. Okay. They're not ovulating. So... Yes, a pheromone is what they they guessed at the time. And since then, that's still the, the leading theory is the suppressing ovulation. Um, but as soon as the female monkeys were removed from that family group and placed with an unrelated male, then they began to ovulate right away. Like all the females in the study got pregnant very quickly. One got pregnant within eight days of being placed with this new male and she'd never ovulated before in her life. Right. Right. So Charles Snowden is, is a really famous primatologist and psychologist, um, did most of these studies. He had a huge captive population um, of tamarins that everyone kind of came and experimented on and observed. And he realized that um, there's more to it as well. Because when they placed the daughters with their brothers away from their mother's pheromone, though, okay. they still didn't ovulate
1: Interesting.
0: So it seems... Or like, And the same thing with their father. Still didn't ovulate. So it seems that exposure to the out-group unrelated male is what triggers the ovulation. So they think it, it's both things. They both need to be away from their mother and in the presence of an unrelated male. In fact, even just hearing a call from an unrelated male sometimes is enough to make them ovulate. Really? Um, <laughs> okay. That call is so hot. I ovulated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so... They would, in the wild, you know, when these daughters got to a certain age, they would eventually disperse and find, you know, find a male. That's kind of how how this should work. Yeah. How, how do they know? It's actually by smell, like relatedness. They can smell relatedness. This will come up again later.
1: Sure. Okay.
0: Um, there's a theory humans can smell these genes as well. Most animals have them. I will talk about this later, though. Okay. Okay. So, the caveat here, though, is that in the wild, very rarely they do see groups of calotrichids with multiple pregnant females. They've seen it, they don't have any idea what's going on there. Okay. Who knows? This is another kind of mystery. We just, it's hard to observe things in the Amazon rainforest.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. It's
0: hard. Especially when the animal in question is. 40 centimeters tops. long in the canopy of the Amazon rainforest. Um, Drones. But now we've gotten to the coolest thing about marmosets. Which is that they're chimeras. And I do not mean the mythical ancient Greek monster. And it's not that awesome, but it's still pretty awesome.
1: Should, should I unfold my piece of paper now?
0: I'm looking at you to see to see if...
1: I wrote Chimerasium.
0: No, I want to see what you read. Um Chimerism? It's very close.
1: Okay, I'll I, take close. This,
0: I said I wasn't going to mark spelling. You totally got it. Chimerism. Nice. Chimerism. Everett is correct.
1: I'm winning this episode.
0: Gold star. Nice. Right there. Thank you. Um, so in Greek mythology, as you all probably know, the chimera was a lion-goat dragon. Yeah. Standard. I did know that. And it's nowhere near that cool in genetics, because it literally just means an animal that contains two or more. Did they at more... least get
1: goat and dragon, or? Uh, no. Mm.
0: Two more groups of cells with a distinct set of genes. Yeah. They're from the same species. Usually, there's some crazy weird science that just happened, that just happened this year, of a human and some animal chimera. Pig. Chimera, I think, from the Salk Institute. Anyways, it's like creepy sci-fi stuff is happening. Um, I did not have time on this podcast to talk about that, but man, that was cool and weird and concerning. I don't know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> so, poetic chimerism, meaning blood cells, embryonic blood cells, okay, was first identified in day in the 1930s. Long time ago. And this occurs because the placentas of those twins fuse together right So the reason it's important that these are fraternal twins is because identical twins will already be sharing usually many of these structures so that's not unusual right in calatricids, they're fraternal twins they're all that that's just to just to explain it identical twins happen when the same egg yes starts to develop and splits
1: right and it's so they fertilize the same... then
0: splits the same egg genetic information
1: right correct
0: fraternal twins are two eggs and two sperms they are no more related than any other siblings are
1: mm-hmm. they
0: just developed at the same time which in marmosets and means the the um there's there's fusion in their blood vessels and like the that communicates their embryonic stem cells back and forth their hematopoietic stem cells right okay
1: so the offspring are from both parents or both fathers maybe or to some degree mixed sometimes okay
0: we'll get to that all right so it's usually still the one the one father right because it's both of his sperm
1: okay fertilized both eggs
0: right usually that's how it happens doesn't always happen that way okay but that would be the more likely scenario sure Um, but, so then these stem cells, you know, settle and grow in different locations, different organs, different areas of the body, because they're blood cells that can go all throughout, right? So, scientists thought that that chimerism only existed in blood cells. Okay. Then in 2008, I think it was actually 2007, now that I, if I remember it correctly, 2007, um, Corinna Ross and colleagues at University of Nebraska, prove that marmosets, marmosets also have germline chimerism. Okay. Your germ cells are your sperm and your
1: ova. Okay. Your eggs. I didn't know that. Got it.
0: Now you know. Uh, which means some of their sperm and some of their eggs do not contain their own DNA. They contain the DNA of their twin. Okay. So they took DNA fingerprints in different organs from 36 twin pairs of the Wides marmoset in 15 different families. Three quarters of the twin pairs had tissues that were genetic matches, complete matches. So in three quarters, there is clear signs of chimerism.
1: As in one twin had...
0: The DNA from the other twin. They had DNA from
1: the other twin. Okay. That wasn't their own.
0: Yeah. Um, So like every single tissue type they examined in at least one set of twins had chimerism present in it. Like brain, skin, hair, muscle, liver, everything. Okay. Um, But the big surprise was that over half of the male marmosets had chimeric sperm. I see. Not half their sperm. Half of the male marmosets did have chimeric sperm.
1: But not all of them.
0: Because this comes originally from hematopoietic embryonic stem cells, which just go kind of all over. Right. They don't tend to go everywhere. There's not enough, you know? So those things can go circulate all through the body and land wherever they... Okay. Please. Early in development. Early in development. Interesting. And then differentiate to different blood structures. White blood cell, red blood cell, whatever. So that's
1: interesting. So that means that one... Like, let's say you had uh, male twins, and you had chimeric sperm, and you mated, you could potentially be increasing the fitness of your twin in doing so. Interesting. Okay.
0: Yes. (laughs) Yes, I will definitely talk about that in a second. Yeah. Perfect. You've got it. Let me set the stage for you. You've come up to the logical conclusion and knocked it out of the park there. So, um, in five out of those 15 families, the monkeys had actually passed on their sibling gene, sibling's genes to what should have been their, their own offspring. Right. So, the offspring basically is getting the genes of its uncle instead of its, you know, assumed father. Right. So, Ross, um, she speculated that a marmoset mother might even be able to pass on a Y chromosome to her children. If she was given one in utero by her twin brother. Germline chimeric. Got it. Okay.
1: She has
0: Y chromosome DNA throughout her body in different organs. Yeah. And sometimes that organ happens to be an ovary. Right. And therefore...
1: She could pass on her brother's Y chromosome. Interesting.
0: Right. So, I have to assume... If that ended up making a YY offspring, that fetus would die. Yeah. It, would, it would not be viable, I'm right. assuming. And that's how that's kind of controlled there. But um, anyways, that's what she suspected. And then a 2012 study confirmed that Y chromosomes were indeed found in females who had male twin brothers. But so far we haven't got to the step where someone has conclusively proved that a female could pass it on to a surviving offspring. No one okay. studied that yet.
1: I see. So that's not that's not for sure yet.
0: No, but someone should study that. Hear that, everyone?
1: PhD in anthropology.
0: Go to South America and tell me the answer, please. So, normally, as you all know, full brothers and sisters share 50% of their genes, 50% relatedness. Mm -hmm. Chimeric siblings are more closely related since they have 50% plus whatever portion of the full complement that they have. Okay. Um, and like many other animals, marmosets use chemical or- odors caused by MHC genes. I should have looked this up. Major histocompatibility complex genes. Something like that. Something about histocompatibility. Okay. Um, they're but largely from- immune system, actually. They're largely oh. about your immune system. Um. But all, they've been brought up a lot in talk, like incest. That animals use it to smell for certain incest factors. I don't know. Even theorized that humans subconsciously use the MHC or MHC like th- odors to find the best mate that they'll have the best offspring with. They'll have you know the best immune system. Basically, okay is how this whole MHC thing is theorized to work. But it's very not fleshed out yet.
1: Okay. Understood.
0: Um, so uh, the study, the scientist Ross, again, she thinks that chimeric monkeys give off extra odor, extra MHC. They have more relatedness with their father. So their father is even more invested sure. in caring for that offspring. Um, and it's also maybe you did pass on your brother's. DNA, and maybe he smells relatedness, but maybe you do too because you have 50% relatedness. Anyway, so maybe both males, all males, might smell enough relatedness to all be dedicated to this. Um, so the chimerism could have brought about the higher parental care, which brought about having more and more offspring. Okay. Possibly.
1: And more helpers Be- for that offspring.
0: Yeah, so it's been observed that fathers actually provide significantly higher care to chimeric infants than non-chimeric infants. Chimeric infants are cared for better, so they will survive better. Interesting. For whatever reason that is, that's the uh, pattern of behavior. Um, so evolutionary spe- evolutionarily speaking, again, you know, there's a mutation. The chimerism arose first somehow through mutation. Those infants were cared for better because of whatever reason, maybe this male, maybe whatever. Mm-hmm. And therefore, females were able to start reproducing faster. And that's the theory for high male parental care, which is not a very common thing. And right. the theory behind the reproduction rates. So, um, you know, that also explains that altruism from before. Like you said, Everett, when you wrote that down, chimerism explains it because if you are somewhat related, even a little bit related. Yeah then you are increasing your fitness because some of your genes are in there, too. Right. So I thought I'd just end with a little blurb about human chimeras. Okay. Um, The first natural human chimera was reported in the British Medical Journal in 1953. One Mrs. Mick. I don't know how you say it because it's literally spelled M-C-K. She's British. Mm Mk. She's British. I'm going to say with I'm going to stick with Mc, Mac, Mick. Um, she had different blood types, and prior to this discovery, because they hadn't reported on it before, prior to chimerism, they thought that that was impossible. We could only have one type of blood: A, B, A, B. I still
1: thought that, but I was wrong.
0: A or okay. B or A B or O, right? Yeah, that was the. So the results were saying that she had O and A type blood. Change okay right and they were like okay well this is just wrong so they just kept testing her over and over <laughs> and they kept getting the same answers and Robert Race the director of the testing unit he remembered a study he had just read about how twin cattle could have mixed blood from their time in utero so he okay he goes and asks Mrs Mick did you have a twin oh yeah yeah twin died as a baby right as soon as we were born all right so they tested her saliva which. Apparently, you can use to show blood type. Oh, I just learned this now. There you go. What? <laughs> that's crazy. So the saliva showed type O blood.
1: So S- that's hers. Okay.
0: And her twin must have had type A. Okay. Yeah. So most commonly, people have that those types of um, chimerism, like Mrs. Mick did called microchimerism where just a small portion of your cells are from somebody else well not your cells your dna yeah uh and this can happen if a twin or triplet pregnancy has one fetus die really early and the cells are incorporated in the remaining fetus or you know in in this case um, just exchanging cells in utero when both twins are even born alive. Like
1: Dwight from the office.
0: <laughs> no, that was the first case. He absorbed his twin in utero. Not yes. you know not no, not such a, uh, Still on the first. Yes, case that there. is like Dwight. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, another type of microchimerism happens when women become pregnant, and a small number of cells from the fetus migrates into her blood and travels to different organs.
1: She becomes a chimera. Correct. With her offspring.
0: Correct. Oh, okay. Um, so in in 1998, a woman named Karen Keegan needed a kidney transplant. So she did genetic testing and all her family did to see if any of them matched. Well, the test said genetically she could not be the mother of two of her three sons. Doctors were able to keep testing and and match uh, sections from her brother's DNA with sections from her son's DNA. Okay. Which proved enough to the doctors that they were related, so they went looking in different tissues, like thyroid, her mouth, her hair, and they found matches there to her son's DNA, but not in all the tissues. Okay. So um, that's called tetragametic chimerism, and they, because they have decided the cause was her absorbing her twin in utero. Okay. It's apparently much more common than anyone ever realizes. Okay. To absorb Cause... a 20 in utero it could it could have happened to any one of you, and you would never know. Well, not the being absorbed. You know, you would know that the absorbing. Oh, it's yeah, right. Yeah, the yeah. absorbing part. Yeah. Um. In 2012, there's a big controversy. A woman named Lydia Fairchild applied for child support um, enforcement, and she had to, of course, of course, provide paternity tests to yeah. prove that this man was her children's father. And the test came back saying, "Yeah, he was, but you're not the mother."
1: Which was surprising uh,
0: to her. It was very surprising to her. She was accused of fraud. She was, by, you know, using other people's children or some sort of surrogacy scam. And officials started pouring over all her birth records. And they tried to take her kids away from her. Yeah. Because they couldn't possibly be her kids. But she was also heavily pregnant with a third child. And the judge in family court ordered a third party had to be present to observe the birth which that's terrible <laughs> and ensure the blood samples were taken immediately from her and the baby and to go to court and testify.
1: Okay.
0: So they did all that the person saying, yeah, I watched the whole thing, took the blood samples and the DNA test said she's not the mother of this baby either. I did watch her give birth to it though. She wasn't the mother is what the DNA said. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, you know, she's on trial and her defense attorney learns about this Karen Keegan case. And so, he thinks this is what happened. They took DNA samples from all of her extended family, and they found that her mother's DNA matched her children. So, again, they did some different samples. Cervical smear DNA matched her children. Okay. Yeah. So, we talked a little bit about the pregnant women possibly becoming chimeras with their their fetuses. This is apparently something that happens in almost every pregnant woman
1: as in a small percentage at
0: least temporarily yeah no like i'm apparently have i'm a chimera probably i am probably a chimera the odds are
1: really so this is wild okay (laughs)
0: researchers so they tested tissue samples from kidneys livers, spleens lungs hearts, and brains Of 26 women who died, unfortunately, during um, pregnancy or within one month of when they gave birth. Okay. And every one of the women had fetal cells in all of their tissues. They were able to do this study pretty easily because they just selected um, women whose children had been male. So all they had to do was look for Y chromosome, so it shouldn't shouldn't be there. It made it -hmm. it really easy to determine. Um, In a 2012 study... Researchers analyzed the brains of 59 women that were like from in their 30s to 101, was the oldest. Okay. Uh, after they died, of course, cuz they need to they needed to they needed brain samples for this one. Sure. So they found 63% of these women had traces of male DNA from fetal cells in their brains. Wow. They found that the oldest woman to have fetal cells in her brain was 94 years old, suggesting that they just might be a permanent addition to these cells.
1: Yeah, that doesn't sound like it was likely a very recent addition.
0: So I just want to point out that no one really knows how prevalent human chimerism is because there's most people are unaware, completely unaware Mm -hmm. and would have no reason to ever find out. It could be the majority of people. Who knows? Yeah. So on that note, I want to thank everyone so much for listening to our podcast on Day. Which is a really fun word to say, and I suggest that you try it. Calatricade, day, day. beautiful hair.
1: Yes, very.
0: Next episode, I'm going to talk about the periodic table of elements, and I promise it won't be in a boring high school way. I'd like and you won't have to memorize anything. I know, and I do too. <laughs> yeah, okay. I just have to assume not everyone is quite as nerdy as us. But, but if of you a sample set of two,
1: 100% enjoyed it. So if we extrapolate...
0: Good pollstering it.
1: Everybody's going to enjoy it.
0: That's good. Mm-hmm. It's a good idea, Everett. So once again, I'm Melissa.
1: And I'm Everett.
0: And I hope you learned something new.